Just a few weeks ago, on August 5th, 2016, John Hinckley Jr., the man who tried to assassinate President Ronald Reagan on March 30th, 1981, in hopes of impressing the young Jodie Foster, was released after spending 35 years in prison. When he was taken to court in 1982, he was charged with 13 offenses, but found not guilty by reason of insanity, N-G-R-I. The psychiatric reports presented by the defense during his trial described him as insane, contrary to the prosecution's claim of his total sanity. For his part, Hinckley stated that the shooting was the greatest love offering in the history of the world and didn't seem to understand why Jodie Foster, then a 19-year-old freshman at Yale, did not return his affection. The NGRI verdict caused an immediate public outcry, and the insanity defense was reconsidered by courts all across the United States. The Insanity Reform Act of 1984 was passed, and the way that mental illness was admitted into federal criminal court proceedings was altered. This change was only the most recent in a long line of attempts to get a handle on the issue of sanity. Who is sane? and who is not. What state of mind must a person be in to be considered sane during the commission of a crime? And, really, is it possible to be too insane to be guilty? Welcome to Psychologia, the podcast where we explore the science behind why we do what we do. I'm your host, Amaya Perta. The evolution of insanity law began centuries ago. The defense itself is built on the principle that people who commit crimes without completely understanding the impact of what they are doing should not be held fully accountable for their actions. In this context, the term insanity refers only to the perpetrator's state of mind at the time of the crime. It is not a statement about the person's overall mental health, or their sanity in other situations. Insanity in this sense can be caused by something external and temporary. Postpartum mental illness, for example, has been cited as a case of insanity. One of the most famous trials in which this defense was successfully used was the case of Andrea Yates, who, in 2001, drowned her four children in a bathtub in the family's home in Texas. There are two primary and opposing viewpoints to explain the purpose of punishment. The first is the retribution perspective, which argues that the punishment for a crime should be proportionate to the harm done by the criminal. The second is the deterrence perspective, which holds that every individual offender should be punished to teach two lessons. One to the criminal, showing that crimes lead to punishment, this is called specific deterrence, 
and another to others who hear about the punishment and are dissuaded from committing the same crime. This is called general deterrence. Neither of these viewpoints applies clearly to insanity cases. If the perpetrator is insane at the time of the crime, then the retribution theory is faulty because punishing someone for something they did not realize they were doing is hardly proportionate. In the same situation, the deterrence model is lacking because the offender had no intention of performing the act and punishment cannot therefore be used to intentionally deter him or her from doing it again or to prevent others from choosing to do the same thing. At the heart of the issue is the question of mens rea, or guilty mind. Mens rea dictates that, to be found guilty, it is not enough to commit the crime, or actus rea, one must also possess awareness of the wrongfulness of the crime. As far back as the Roman Empire, the law stated that people could not be held accountable for their crimes if they were non-compus mentis, or without mastery of the mind. How to determine this mastery, however, was unclear. In England, for example, from the 14th to the 16th century, the decision was based on a religious foundation. To be convicted, an accused criminal had to know the difference between good and evil. The earliest evidence of a court attempting to account for sanity rather than religious understanding comes from the 1724 British trial Rex v. Arnold, an assassination attempt, in which the jurors were ordered to render a not guilty verdict if they found the defendant to be, quote, totally deprived of his understanding and memory, and doth not know what he is doing no more than a brute or a wild beast. There are three major cases that led to crucial reforms and clarifications of insanity law in the United States. Because of the sensational nature of most cases involving an insanity defense and the attending public outcry, insanity law is often made and modified in particularly charged moments in history. As we shall see, these three important trials were no exception. The first trial we will explore is the McNaughton case. In 1843, Daniel McNaughton, who was plagued by delusions, set out to kill Robert Peel, the Prime Minister of England, by shooting him in the back, and killed his secretary, Edward Drummond, instead. Nine medical experts testified that he was insane, and the jury found him not guilty by reason of insanity. It was decided that he should receive psychiatric help rather than be sent to prison, and he spent the rest of his days in Broadmoor Asylum. Queen Victoria was outraged by the sentence, or lack thereof, and petitioned the House of Lords to establish laws to protect the citizenry from, quote, the wrath of madmen who could now kill with impunity. As a result, the McNaughton Rule was devised as the new standard of legal insanity. The law has three parts. First, the defendant must be sane and responsible for the crime. Second, at the actual moment of the crime, the defendant must have been acting, quote, under defect of reason or disease of the mind. And third, during the commission of the crime, the defendant must not have known 
that what he or she was doing was wrong, or, as the House of Lords put it, not know the nature and quality of the act he was doing. The McNaughton Rule was met with some criticism, in part because it is very difficult to know whether or not a person is aware of the nature of his or her own actions, and it fails to take into consideration the question of control. It is, in fact, possible to recognize that you are doing something wrong and still be unable to stop yourself. To address this issue, some states have added an additional element to the definition of insanity, called irresistible impulse, which is meant to take into account the perpetrator's self-control, also called volitional capacity. The litmus test for this is the policeman at the elbow test. Essentially, would the crime have been committed even if a police officer had been standing at the defendant's elbow? The second major case to affect the course of the insanity defense was the Durham case. In 1945, Monte Durham was released from the U.S. Navy after being found unfit to serve by a psychiatrist. He attempted suicide, spent time in a mental facility, and was arrested for breaking and entering. During the trial, the judge refused to hear evidence about his mental state, but the appeal judge reviewed his past case and concluded that the current standard for insanity was obsolete and misguided. He ordered a new trial and a new standard for insanity, the Durham Standard, also known as the Product Test, which states that, quote, an accused is not criminally responsible if his unlawful act was the product of mental disease or disorder. In 1972, the American Law Institute deemed the Durham Standard to be overly vague and dissatisfactory and developed a new standard as part of the Model Penal Code. Quote, a person is not responsible for criminal conduct if, at the time of such conduct, as a result of mental disease or defect, he lacks substantial capacity to appreciate the criminality of his conduct or to reform his conduct to the requirements of the law. And we now come full circle to the top of the podcast and the last of the three trials that became the foundation for modern insanity law. In 1981, John Hinckley dropped out of college, became obsessed with Jodie Foster after watching Taxi Driver. He's a what? I'm a Libra too. That's why we get along so well. And attempted to assassinate President Reagan to impress her. An incident that took place less than 15 minutes ago at the Washington Hilton Hotel when shots were fired at President Reagan. Here you see the president coming out now. You just have to watch. I don't know whether you can hear this or not. During the trial, four psychologists testified that Hinckley was psychologically disturbed and likely suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity and committed to a psychiatric hospital. The Hinckley trial was the first time that the burden of proof was placed on the prosecutors to prove sanity rather than the defense attorneys to prove insanity. As you might expect, the Hinckley case garnered an immense amount of public and media scrutiny. There was enormous outrage over the lack of a punitive sentence, and the issue remains a hot-button topic, particularly following Hinckley's release. In the wake of the ruling, the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984 was written, 
which placed the burden of proof back on the defendant's lawyers, making insanity an affirmative defense. Now, the prosecution is not responsible for proving that the defendant is sane. Rather, the defense must pull together the evidence and the expert witnesses to argue the opposite. Another change brought about after the Hinckley trial was the requirement that experts be barred from testifying about their opinion regarding sanity. This type of testimony is called ultimate issue testimony, and it involves the witness making direct statements about the issue at hand, rather than giving evidence to help jurors come to their own conclusions. Without ultimate issue testimony, experts cannot explicitly say whether or not a defendant is guilty, which is meant to help prevent overly prejudicial comments from being admitted during the trial. Some states have done away with the insanity defense altogether, while others now demand a preponderance of evidence or clear and convincing evidence on the part of the defense in order to prove insanity. Most states have some form of an insanity plea, like not guilty by reason of insanity. Another verdict that was introduced in an effort to find balance between punishment and lack thereof is the guilty but mentally ill verdict in which a guilty defendant is held accountable for the crime but receives mental health treatment in prison. This ruling, however, has been criticized because many prisons lack decent mental health facilities, which means that treatment is not guaranteed and the guilty but mentally ill verdict may not be useful. Another set of legal defenses in which sanity is called into question is the mens rea defense. These are only available for certain crimes in which a specific mental state is required, by definition, in order for a conviction to be passed down. An example of this type of crime is first-degree murder, in which the perpetrator must have committed the crime knowingly and with premeditation or specific intent. You will remember from the beginning of this episode that mens rea means guilty mind and dictates that, to be found guilty, a defendant must be aware of the wrongful nature of his or her actions. One form of this defense is diminished capacity, which is when the defendant lacks the mental capacity to grasp the crime. In this situation, unlike with the insanity defense, the prosecution must prove mens rea. An example of this is the infamous Twinkie defense, which was presented during the trial of Dan White. Dan White was a former San Francisco police officer and firefighter and, for 10 months before the time in question, a city district supervisor. After resigning due to a complaint about his paltry salary, White decided he wanted his position back. The city's mayor, George Moscone, was still in the process of choosing a replacement supervisor when the horrors of Jonestown occurred. For those who don't remember, Jim Jones's cult, the People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ, engaged in a mass suicide on November 18, 1978, in which 918 members died. 17 more survivors of the People's Temple mass deaths returned to the United States from Guyana tonight with an armed escort. The, group the event happened the at Jonestown. Jones and people who are the People's Temple had been headquartered in San Francisco, so the event took a major toll on the city. Mayor Moscone decided that he needed to put someone in the vacated supervisor position who was in touch with the political tenor of the moment, and, rather than reinstating Dan White, he chose Harvey Milk, the first openly gay public official in California. 
White became furious and vengeful. And on November 27th of that year, just nine days after the Jonestown massacre, he shot and killed both Moscone and Milk. His trial began in 1979 and included defense testimony from a psychiatrist named Martin Blinder, who stated that White was severely depressed at the time of the crime. As evidence of this depression, Dr. Blinder mentioned that White had quit his job, shunned his wife, and, although he had previously been a fitness fanatic and health food nut, began consuming large quantities of junk food and soda. Blinder went on to say that changes in diet may amplify mood swings, hinting that the junk White was eating could have played a role in his depression. Ultimately, the jury was successfully convinced that White's capacity for rational thought was subpar and he was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter rather than murder. Now, popular legend has it that White's attorneys made the argument that processed food and sugar made White crazy enough to commit double homicide. This excuse was widely mocked in the media and satirist Paul Krasner is credited with having coined it the Twinkie Defense. One of the more colorful urban myths of the criminal justice system is the so-called Twinkie defense. It is alleged that a San Francisco jury of middle-class middle homeowners gave Supervisor Dan White, who killed another supervisor, Harvey Milk, and San Francisco's mayor, George Moscone, uh, he, he committed a, a double homicide because he was eating junk food like Twinkies. And because of that, they gave him a partial pass. Rather than convicting him of first-degree murder, they convicted him only of manslaughter. So that was the Twinkie defense. If you eat junk food and then kill somebody, uh, the jury will be at least in part forgiving. And rather than Convicting you of first-degree murder will convict you of a far lesser offense. And certainly Dan White was convicted of a far lesser offense. In actuality, White's lawyers merely stated that their client's shift to junk food was a symptom of his depression, not the cause. But nevertheless, the term has hung on. White's trial led to a change in California law. The term diminished capacity was eliminated in 1982 and replaced with diminished actuality, which refers to whether or not the defendant actually had the necessary intent at the time of the crime, rather than the capacity for the intent. In the United States, there are 51 different ways to deal with insanity, one for every state and another for federal courts. Only about 0.85% of cases involve an insanity plea, and of these, only 25% are successful. Predictably, murder is the most common crime for which an insanity defense is employed. Defendants diagnosed with personality disorders or charged with sex crimes are the least likely to be successful with the defense, and those with psychotic disorders, schizophrenia in particular, are most likely to be acquitted. It may surprise you to learn that, if you are ever in a position to plead insanity, you would actually be better off with a bench trial in which the verdict is decided by a judge rather than a jury trial. This is because one of the biggest hurdles to clear an insanity law is the fact that jurors struggle mightily with interpreting it. 
As you may have gathered from this brief but complicated history, the definitions and information needed to accurately judge a person's sanity are immensely complex. Surveys have shown that jurors have a very hard time distinguishing between the various insanity instructions. What is the difference between the McNaughton Rule and the Durham Standard? Who has the burden of proof? How is it possible to know whether or not someone had intent at the time of a crime that was committed months or even years before the trial begins? Additionally, juries are often swayed by the defendant's guilt in bringing about his or her disability of mind, such as when someone with known psychotic episodes voluntarily stops taking medication. If a perpetrator could have controlled the circumstances that led to the insanity that happened during the crime, then shouldn't that be taken into account? Who is really to blame? In truth, we may never have an answer, but there are some tests and techniques that have been developed to help assess insanity. One of them is the Mental State at the Time of Offense Screening Evaluation, or MSE, which attempts to suss out defendants whose crimes were not influenced by significant mental disorder, and another is the Rogers Criminal Responsibility Assessment Scale, or the RCRAS, which attempts to break down the legal standards of insanity into components, such as the ability to control thoughts or behaviors. No tests at this point, however, can perfectly ascertain another person's sanity. So the great mystery continues, and we are left where we began, with the question that started it all. Who is sane, and who is not? Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda with writing help from Mario Rivera and sound design and original music composition by Cameron Carter. You can find all episodes of Psychologia on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. Take a moment to write us a review. It really helps us out. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Psychologia Podcast or Twitter at PsychologiaCast and visit our website for show notes and supplemental materials or to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back next time with another episode exploring the science behind why we do what we do. When your emotions control your actions, it affects not only yourself, but the people around you. Psychologists find that control of emotions can be gained by understanding the stimulus response pattern. When you have certain experiences, you respond with various emotions.